Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. Global News will have U.S. election coverage on several platforms, television, radio, online and social media leading up to and on Tuesday, Election Day. On Tuesday evening, Chorus Radio Network coverage will be anchored by my great friend Charles Adler. Welcome back to the family, Charles. Globalnews.ca from 8 o'clock in the evening Eastern or 6 p.m. Mountain Time will provide a live webcast, which will be streamed also onto Facebook and YouTube. And uh, there's going to be a tremendous lineup of hosts, analysts, and reporters, including Tom Clark, Global News Chief Political Correspondent and host of the West Block. Uh, The West Block and Global National Broadcasting live from Washington, D.C. as of today. And Tom Clark joins me on the Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. It's been a while since we talked. Tom, how are you? I'm very well, Roy. I decided I could stick around and listen to this entire show. What a lineup. It is. I, I think I'll stick around and listen to it, too. <laughs> you, uh, you've covered, well, really the most important news developments globally for more than 40 years, and that's our federal elections. You were the bureau chief in Washington for five years, bureau chief in Beijing. You've been to six active war zones, the Tiananmen Square night. The Chinese army attacked demonstrators, and you saw the Berlin Wall come down, and we're in Moscow, and the hammer and sickle was lowered for the last time. So all of that considered, Tom, where does this 2016 U.S. election, and particularly the last few days, rank in real and potential importance? Well, I'm tempted to say that this is going to be my seventh war zone, Uh, (laughs) taking a look at what's going on. The uh, This is a transformational moment in the United States, regardless of what happens. What we're seeing here is not a race that is going to be over and decided on Tuesday night. It is going to continue on after this, regardless of who wins. There's such a divide that has opened up in the United States that is not going to easily be bre- or, uh, reconnected. Um, we're going to have constant warfare between Congress and the White House effective government in this country is going to be almost impossible and i think it's going to be almost a generation before politics in this nation gets back to anything resembling what it was say even 15 or 20 years ago you know as you watch the developments as we all did since the primaries began until today how many times did you think this is it this is when things return to some level of predictability this is when the smoke starts to clear only to find the smoke just became more intense. Not a great metaphor, but it's how I kept viewing the picture. And for me, Tom, the first example, when I thought it was going to clear somewhat, was when Donald Trump attacked John McCain on war hero status. I said that on the air, and I was attacked in a second. I said, this one's really different. Yeah, I mean, you're so right. Every time that we thought it can't get any crazier, it can't get any more bizarre, All you had to do was wait five minutes, and sure enough, there was something else uh, to take us down that road. And it wasn't all Donald Trump, but it was mainly Donald Trump. Uh, It's the way the country reacted to it. It's the way the, the rooms divided up, the families divided up. I mean, we have a situation down here in the United States right now where you have literally families divided somewhat the same way they were during the Civil War. You know, a husband against wife, brother against brother, we are not coming to blows, and I don't mean to put it in the terms of what the Civil War was, but I think that that type of division that runs through right down the center of the living room is what we're seeing. Yeah, I spoke yesterday with the past president of the American Psychological Association, who's also Canadian and a professor of psychology at Temple University. Nice guy, quiet, very positive, but he did not discount talk about civil war, he did not discount the possibility of some real and significant civil unrest in uh, the United States, maybe as early as Tuesday night, and definitely he thinks by Wednesday. The potential is there. Oh, yeah. 
I, I wouldn't doubt that for a minute. You take a look at the Trump rallies. Now, we haven't seen rallies like this in the United States. Barack Obama came close in 2008 at some of those massive rallies that he had. If you remember St. Louis, I think he had about 200,000 people out in St. Louis during that campaign. But consistently, Trump is drawing enormous crowds across the United States. And what does he tell them? He tells them Hillary Clinton is a crook that she has committed crimes and misdemeanors. She has no right to be in the Oval Office. Well, if it turns out on Tuesday that Hillary Clinton is elected and she is sitting in the Oval Office, you have millions, tens of millions of Americans who believe that she has no right to be there. And if they really believe, as many of them do, that the future of the republic is at stake, and frankly that's a view that the Clinton people have as well, well, you know, sky's the limit in terms of what can happen. Yeah. Uh, I like the email that I got from the guy who said, look, Don, here's what's happening. Donald Trump is actually bussing the same 20,000 people from rally to rally. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> what do you do? They, they well, may what do look you do, Tom? the same. <laughs> look, I, I know why Hillary Clinton is the Democratic nominee. Uh, eight years ago, she and Bill Clinton decided she would be that in 2016. And the Clintons are formidable. But Donald Trump, in some ways... I think he's the accidental GOP candidate. He's filled and still fills a populist need. But what's your take on how the Americans, uh, your take on how the Americans wound up with Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump to choose from for POTUS on Tuesday? That's the question that's constantly being asked. How did they wind up with those two? And, and before I get to that, you know, the interesting thing is that these are two deeply unpopular candidates. Take a look at their unfavorability ratings in the polls, and they're at historic lows uh, in, in terms of being unfavorable. So the American people have got this awful choice. And, in fact, the polls are suggesting, Roy, that a lot of people, almost a majority of people going out to vote for Clinton, are not voting for her. They're voting against Donald Trump. Similarly, the Trump voters are voting against Hillary Clinton. So we've got an election where people are voting against things as opposed to for things, which puts it on a whole different level. Hillary Clinton is there because of a thing called Clinton World. It is one of the most formidable political machines that the United States has ever seen. And mark my words regardless of what happens on Tuesday night to Hillary Clinton, the next Clinton who's going to make a run for the White House is going to be Chelsea Clinton because it is now the family business. It's weird to me that on the Clinton side we seem to have gone back to a democracy that more resembles Game of Thrones than anything else. I mean, we have the king and the queen and this whole idea of the House of Clinton. Uh, On the Trump side... I always thought that every time Clint won a, uh, sorry, Trump won a primary, that he'd demand a recount. Uh, <laughs> was, nobody was more astonished than he was. And I think, you know, a lot of people are saying, if Donald Trump actually wins the presidency, the pool is on as to how many days he's going to last in office, only because he's going to get bored with all those briefings. And uh, it may be the reason Mike Pence decided to be his vice presidential running mate, because he thinks there's more than a good chance that he may end up as president because Donald will just get bored with the whole thing. And he's already got a nicer plane. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, pollsters, I mentioned at the beginning of the, sh- of the show, I won't keep you very long, much longer, that's but okay. po- pollsters um, were 100% wrong in 2015 in the U.K., 92 polls over seven weeks of campaigning, not one of them correctly predicting a majority David Cameron conservative government. I've had this sense for a long time now, with due respect to our pollster friends who will be joining us later, I've had this sense for a long time now that Tuesday night may be a repeat of Britain 2015. Yeah, I think there's a good chance of that for a couple of reasons. Number one is that polls traditionally seem to underweight the, uh, the conservative vote. A lot of people don't want to admit to a pollster, even though they don't know the person, they don't want to admit over the phone that they're about to vote for Donald Trump. Uh, This has happened in Britain. It's happened in Canada. It could very well be happening here. But I think that the other thing is this. When you take a look at the plethora of polls that you've got down here, the real problem, I think, is not so much the pollsters, although they are a little bit all over the place. It's the people who interpret the polls. And a lot of people are looking for something called confirmation bias in other words they peer at the numbers and they see what they want to see so you're going to see a lot of people 
on the cable channels talking about how these polls show for sure that Hillary Clinton is going to pull off a smashing victory on Tuesday night. But then they've been sort of in her corner a lot right from the beginning. Similarly, supporters of Donald Trump are looking at the polls and seeing something entirely different. So it's the analysis of the polls that I think has been shockingly bad. And, um, you know, maybe that'll make the pollsters feel better when they lose again on Tuesday night. Let's see. Uh, what can we look for from uh, Global News uh, on coverage? You're there in Washington now um, yeah. and continuing through the end of Tuesday night. A bit of a huge issue. So what are, well, you, what are you guys going to be doing? Okay, so we're going to be on the ground with Global National starting tomorrow night. Donna Friesen's coming down here. We're going to be... Uh, taking care of all of our local news shows. And then on Tuesday night, we are going to live stream the entire election coverage. We have results. We've got experts. Wherever you are, you're going to be able to see at globalnews.ca. We are going to be on the air on all the newscasts across the country. We are going to be on Chorus Radio from Washington, D.C. as everything develops. In other words, if you want to follow this election and you want a particularly Canadian view on this election, you know where to go. Global News, Chorus Radio. So glad we're all the same family now. It's fun, isn't it? It is. Tom, always great speaking with you, my friend. Take care and have a great couple of days. And come Wednesday morning, I think we'll all be shaking our heads, regardless of what happens. (laughs) I think you're right. Take care. Thanks, Roy. Tom Clark, Global News Chief Political Correspondent and host of the West Block. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Rand Coombs is the managing editor of Rasmussen Polling, RasmussenReports.com. Great source of information. I'm not just saying that because I signed on to Rasmussen's um, email releases, and I see them regularly, several times a week, and it's terrific information. Fran, thank you uh, again. As I say constantly and for months of now, I've said thank you for taking the time. Thanks for sharing your time with us and and, and sharing what you're finding out at uh, at Rasmussen, how confusing is this one for the people who do the polling, for, for you and the folks in your organization? It, I would say that it's as confusing as it is for anyone who's following this race, Roy. Uh, I, none of us have ever seen anything like this. I mean, you, you and I have discussed this many times. And by the way, I love being on your show. You ask great questions. It's, it's always a good discussion. Thank you. Um, but I've been covering, as you know, presidential elections. The first one I covered as a rookie reporter back in 76 was Ford Carter. And for a while, I thought this one was an approximation of 1980, Reagan Carter. But no, there's never been anything like this. And uh, as you you know, as you can imagine, pollsters are scratching their head. The, the the good news is is that when you're months out or weeks out, nobody's going to remember who had somebody up 10 or down five or whatever. The moment of truth is coming on Tuesday. We're going to find out how accurate everybody really is. I uh, mentioned at the top of the show, I went back and did just some cursory research before going on air today, and I looked at the 2015 British election and uh, looked at the polling that was done, and over seven weeks, 92 polls were conducted. Not one predicted a majority conservative government, which, of course, is exactly what happened with David Cameron as prime minister. So, I, I well, it's going to be either Trump or Clinton, but one of the potential nightmare scenarios, I don't know if any polling's been done on this, would be a tie in the Electoral College. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we're going to see that. I honestly don't believe we're going to. I mean, one of the other of them is going to win it. Um, again, because I, I feel like everything, everything I used to know is out the window. <laughs> I mean, if I was looking at this the way I used to look at elections, I would say the Democrats are very scared that Trump's going to win. I mean, you've got... They're, they're, they're going back to the battleground states over and over and over again. You've got President Obama in a taped interview essentially encouraging illegal immigrants to vote and saying there will be no consequences. I mean, this is, this is the stuff of raw panic. Uh, this is not the stuff of somebody who's seeing internal polls that show them winning the election handily. Uh, by contrast, the, Trump's out there. He's going into Democratic states. He's push, push, pushing. Does that mean he has the edge? In the old days, I would have said definitely. The Republicans are confident, the Democrats are not. But in this election, I don't think anybody knows. When you look at what's happened over the last couple of days, and you mentioned President Obama, and he does look worried. He, his legacy's at stake here. If Trump wins, the legacy is at least for four years out the window. 
but he's had, uh, or Hillary Clinton has had uh, Jay-Z, she's had Beyonce, she's had Katy Perry, she's got Barack Obama, she has uh, Uncle Joe, the vice president. How helpful is all of that uh, at the, oh, God, I hate the cliche, at the end of the day? Well, I think the only one that's potentially helpful is uh, is President Obama. Uh, perhaps Jay-Z and Beyonce, I mean, uh, that I don't think. Celebrities... Celebrities are always a mixed bag, but there is no question that the Democrats are terrified that they will not get sufficient black turnout, uh, and, and, and obviously that terror is growing. Uh, but to me, as a U.S. citizen, regardless of who I'm for in this election, to see the President of the United States attacking the FBI and encouraging illegal immigrants to vote is a very scary thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, could, I suppose, in theory, then, I could drive across the border into uh, New York State, in theory, and fake my way into into voting, and and not be, not be accused by the occupant current op- occupant of the White House of having done anything immoral. Well, that's what the current occupant of the White House says. Don't worry about it. There won't be any. Uh, there won't be any repercussions if you do it. What about the percentage of Americans who have already voted? And the impact of those votes. What is it, something in the neighborhood of 30 or 40 million? I'm sure. I mean, when you and I talked a week ago, it was, I think, 22, something like that. Um, Trump, obviously, as you know, has been out there encouraging people in the states where they can do this to take the vote back and change it. Traditionally, Democrats, as you know, Democrats vote more early than Republicans do, but we're, we're, we're not seeing those kind of margins. We're seeing a lot of Republicans, excuse me, voting early, too. And uh, and again, for, again, for as best you can read exit polls, and exit, exit polling is definitely a mixed bag. There appears to be not nearly the black turnout we've seen, and certainly in the past two elections, which is very worrisome to the Democrats. Hence, Jay Z, Beyonce, and President Obama out on the out on the hustings, big time. Yeah, I understand that after Jay Z and Beyonce finished performing, people started to leave before Hillary Clinton spoke. That can't be terribly encouraging but you know people go for the show right well it's interesting too though because i mean a couple of things that are interesting to me is is that louis farrakhan the head of the nation of islam came out with some very damning remarks about hillary clinton in the last week and i just saw today that dave chappelle who's a, an african-american comedian very highly thought of very popular came out and was very critical of her in a public function last night so i think yeah, when you see these kind of cracks in the black community, that's what's worrying the Democrats. Because uh, you, you, obviously in 2008 and 2012, you had a wall of support for President Obama. It was virtually impossible to find any black American who was going to criticize uh, Obama, take the Republican side in that race, even if they were conservative. They just basically kept their mouths shut. But this time you're seeing some, some prominent blacks come out and be very critical. Uh, surprising ones. I'm not talking about Ben Carson now. Uh, and so that suggests to me why the Democrats are worried, because the the monolithic black vote may not be go, it may not be turning out and voting for the Democrats the way it usually does. Nobody likes to be taken advantage of, or nobody likes to feel as though they're t- being taken advantage of. And I think across the board, Fran, uh, across the uh, if the divide exists, let's just say across the racial, ethnic, linguistic, religious divides. There is a common denominator, and that is that politicians and governments have taken advantage of all of us. They've made promises to everyone, and they've broken almost all of those promises. So if there is that common denominator that ties people together, it's that we're all fed up of being lied to. Right. I think that's absolutely true, Roy. I mean, again, for a party that bends over backwards to say that it is championing the middle class in this country to then turn around and attack the FBI and encourage illegal immigrants to vote, it kind of makes you wonder, uh, huh, is that really good for the middle class? Yeah. I just, I mean, I think it's opening a lot of people's eyes to just exactly what's going on here. Tell me this. If, if Donald Trump loses on Tuesday night, how responsible will he personally be for the loss? Will he have largely engineered his own loss by his loose or callous or indifferent talk? You know, I might have said that if the election was held six weeks ago or eight weeks ago, uh, but I don't believe that anymore, Roy. I mean, I really question whether any of the Republican candidates who are on that stage with Donald Trump 
would be doing better than he's doing right now? I don't think they would have. I don't. I think that the Democrats would have hit them with the same kind of stuff, and some of them have things that they really need probably to hide, and they would not have had near the enthusiasm uh, from voters that Trump does. I mean, Trump Trump has enthusiastic supporters. Uh, would Marco Rubio have that kind of enthusiasm? Would Jeb Bush? Uh, would Ted Cruz? You know, Ted Cruz with that evangelical stuff. You know, the Democrats would have beaten him to death over that. Um, so I, I just, I don't know. That's a good I point. I don't, I don't think you can blame Trump at this juncture. That's a, good, that's a good point. Why did most of the WikiLeaks mud not stick to Hillary Clinton? Like Donna Brazil and, uh, you know, the, the feed the debate question to, uh, you know, to, to Hillary in advance so she can clobber Bernie Sanders with the answer. Well, of course, we know Donna Brazil lost her job. Right. CNN but why, do, why didn't, why didn't the Wicked, Fran, why didn't the WikiLeaks stuff stick more to Hillary Clinton than it apparently has? Yeah, well, look, you know why. You know why it didn't. Because media. the major media in this yeah. country didn't pick up on yeah, it. I got you. They're not, you know, the New York Times and the CNN and ABC, NBC, CBS are not leading with the WikiLeaks stuff every night over and over and over again. Yeah. Well, I'm, and I'm, I'll tell you that I'm one, probably one of the few conservative voices in media in this country. So, Right. No, I understand. Actually, I'm, I'm a follower of Mark Stein, and I know the uh, problems that Mark has up there in Canada. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I, that I have problems, but at times, it's, uh, at times it's challenging. But you are who you are. And, and whether listeners uh, agree with me or not, they need to know where I stand. And that's one of the problems with politicians, again, coming full circle. They will adapt their message to suit the day, to suit the mood, to see, to suit whoever's standing or sitting in front of them or with whomever they're communicating on social media. They'll adapt the message in order to maximize the gain for themselves. And that is what people are so sick and tired of. Fran, we'll find out Tuesday night. And I'm sure you and I will still have things to talk about going forward. Yeah, I'm sure we will. And uh, this, this is, I tell you, it's almost hard to believe this election is going to finally be over. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I've been, I mean, I'm such an election junkie. I, I, I hope they don't say, you know, election coverage starts at 8 p.m., 8.01, here's the projected winner. I don't want that. I want to have, it's got to be like the Super Bowl. Keep me in suspense for a while. Right. Well, I think if Hillary Clinton ends up as president, though, for a lot of Americans, it's going to be like having a black hole as president after Trump. I think even Trump's opponents are going to miss having him on the national stage. Fran, thank you so much for today. Thanks for all the other times, and we'll talk going forward. Okay, sounds good, Roy. You take care. All the best. Fran Coombs. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. John Zogby is the founder of Zogby Analytics, and uh, he is the author of We Are Many, We Are One. He joins us on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Certainly many. How, how many are one, though, John, on, uh, heading toward Tuesday? Well, we can be, but, but we're not. And we won't be heading into Tuesday, and I don't believe we will on Wednesday. How worried are you? About? Just the mood, future? just the mood in your country. Well, I think it's nasty, very nasty in, in the short term. But I do think the potential for healing is there. And I also don't think that either of these two candidates are uh, have the capacity to do that. So who, and I'm drifting a little bit from the questions I intend to ask you, but who's going to do that? Who will be able to begin and foster the healing? Well, you know, we've done that before. And I, I think, you know, for starters, uh, faster economic growth, you know, is always a possibility. But, you know, leaders do uh, emerge. Um, you know, look at uh, Barack Obama, couldn't even get into the Democratic National Convention in 2000, uh, couldn't get uh, certification, um, and by 2004 he was delivering the keynote address as a state senator from Illinois, and by 2008 he was uh, elected president. So anything, literally, within reason, is, is doable. So, oh, yeah. if the, so the negativity that is, that is out there and it's strong and it's palpable now isn't necessarily going to last for any appreciable period of time. Well, let me ask you, though, as we head toward... No, I, I just wanted to further point on that. I, I'm very hopeful about millennials who don't have any patience with any of this stuff at all. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, from, 
from there um, could arise either leaders or you know all new ways of communication that that promote the consensus. Yeah, that's where the leaders are going to have to come from. Mm-hmm. The millennials are going to, obviously the next generation of leaders. So so that's where they're going to have to come from. I found it interesting. Harvard did a, um, a poll of their students. Now this goes back a few months. And, and their students wanted to see Sanders versus Trump. Yes. And, and clearly they were engaged. But I want to ask you this. Here we are on Sunday, and people in this country are emotionally caught up in what's happening in the United States election. Mm-hmm. Is it essentially over now, John, except for counting the ballots? Um, or is there still... Is there still, over the next 48 hours, room for one or the other of the candidates to make a significant impact? Oh, I think the potential is there with the, for a significant impact uh, or for events, you know, to cause a, a significant impact. You know, as, as many know, uh, terrorists have targeted uh, yeah. Monday for, you know, a day of terrorist acts. I, I don't know if that will happen um, or not. But then there's also the um, potential of a, uh, uh, you know, the Clinton campaign came out with a very weird statement uh, today saying, if there's a new tranche of, of WikiLeaks, uh, don't believe them, they're false. And, and uh, that's kind of strange. I saw that. that. Probably know something is, is going to be leaked. But who knows how the public and those remaining undecideds will respond. Is it going to be a, a, a long night on Tuesday night, do you think, or is it going to be a fairly short night? I think it's going to be a long night because the polls are suggesting that it's tightening. Now, you know, look, I, I don't know. I honestly don't. Um, <laughs> over the next two days, it can go in any direction or, or it, it could stay very tight. Whatever it is, though, <clears throat> uh, these two parties don't like each other these two candidates don't like each other mm-hmm. and for the first time um, you know we've had Armageddon elections before but we've never had a situation where one side completely denies the legitimacy of the election of the other side we might have had that in 2000 my poll showed that Bush uh, voters were not prepared to accept the legitimacy of Al Gore if he became president um, uh, the Al Gore people weren't as fond, you know, were, were not very fond of George Bush, but at least uh, a majority would accept the legitimacy. You know, we found that a few weeks after the election. But I, <coughs> I think we'll have charges and counter charges, and I think we very well could have that Tuesday night and uh, into Wednesday, and um, who knows. Yeah, it's whichever way it turns out on Tuesday night, there's going to be a certain amount of unrest that will follow it. And, I mean, I've been reading that both parties intend to challenge each other, investigate each other after the election, regardless of the outcome. And uh, some are saying that whether it's Trump or whether it's Clinton, it's going to be impossible for them to govern as presidents have in the past because of the, 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 the roadblocks that have gone up and the speed bumps that have been created over the last several months. That The climate and the attitude and, the, and just the mood in Washington and in the nation is so challenging and so taxed that it's going to be almost impossible for them to govern as previous presidents have out of the gate. Yeah, I think so. You know, and I, I think that Barack Obama, to a great degree, was denied uh, much of a, of a honeymoon um, right from the, the beginning. And whatever legislation he passed, you know, economic stimulation for starters and, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Affordable Care Act was done entirely by Democrats uh, and no Republicans uh, in, in support and a vow from the minority leader at that time that our job is to make sure he doesn't get a second term. And that was within 100 days yeah. of, of, his, of his inauguration. What are you personally going to be looking for? What, will, what, will, what are you looking for on the radar screen between now and Tuesday? Well, I want to see, uh, you know, two eastern states, actually. So I'll have a signal early enough. One, one is North Carolina, 15 electoral votes, which makes it, uh, you know, in the, in the, the upper, you know, 10% of, of states um, or 20% of states in size. 
But if, if the African-American vote is slow and doesn't come out, uh, that's a signal that um, younger African-Americans aren't voting and young people aren't voting, um, and that's bad for, for Clinton. Um, in Pennsylvania, uh, if we have an early indication that, that Clinton is leading, there's a state that's tightening, and that's 20 electoral votes. Um, uh, Trump is counting on the western part of the state, uh, the st- old steel country around Pittsburgh, um, and, uh, and the central part of the state, which James Carville once described as Alabama, um, is uh, if, if there's heavy turnout there among white voters and they swamp uh, Philadelphia, which is heavily African-American, and Philadelphia's liberal suburbs, then I'll get a signal as to whether uh, Trump is doing well enough maybe to take a state like, uh, like Michigan. Or today he's in Minnesota, which is interesting. And Minnesota hasn't gone Republican for 40 years, right? For 40 years. Well, is it 76? Uh, uh, whenever uh, uh, Reagan... No, no, of course, Mondale won Minnesota because he was from Minnesota. Yeah. Uh, 40 years. 40 yeah. years. 10 elections. That's, yeah. a, that's a long time. That is a long time. And do you think then that Minnesota is in play? It's tightening, but it, it depends on, on African-American and Latino turnout in other states. Um, if, if they're not turning out to vote, now they're not, they're not huge in Minnesota, but if they're not turning out to vote uh, and Hillary Clinton's base is maybe more on the anemic side, Trump um, is having a rally today in the in the Twin Cities area and they had 20,000 RSVPs in within 2 hours wow. and uh, Mike Pence oh. is way up north uh, or just south of you in Duluth yeah uh, and and well it, it's it's interesting though they would be going after Minnesota after such a long cycle of the state of the state being a voting democrat so they well, they must have they must be getting a, some messages internally wasn't on the radar screen that's yeah. the thing yeah John, I, I thank you for the time today. Thanks for joining us throughout the election, and we'll be sitting on uh, I'll be sitting on the edge of my chair on Tuesday night with the seatbelt firmly on. Me too. All the best. Thanks, Roy. Good to talk to you. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred CHML. Yuri Felshtinsky is a Russian American historian. And he argues in an article we'll go back to your call shortly at one eight hundred two six three twenty four twenty eight. Who do you think is going to win on Tuesday, and why? Trump or Clinton? Who do you want to who do you want to see win? Trump or Clinton? Who would uh, be best for the United States? Best for the relationship between Canada and the United States? Best for the world? Clinton or Trump? One eight hundred two six three twenty four twenty eight. Yuri Felstinsky is a Russian American historian, and he argues in an article for Gordon which is an online publication, at least as far as I've been able to determine, that, um, that Donald Trump has been recruited by Russia and is acting in the interests of Vladimir Putin. Mr. Felstinsky, or Professor Felstinsky, is the author of The Corporation, Russia and the KGB in the Age of President Putin. Um, Yuri Felstinsky's co-author of Blowing Up Russia, that's the book that's banned in Russia, Alexander Litvinenko, was assassinated by Russian government agents in London. This is, uh, the British government is convinced of this after an exhaustive study of what happened to Mr. Litvinenko. And uh, several prominent individuals associated with that book have also been killed. But the book that Yuri is drawing attention to now is The Corporation, Russia and the KGB in the Age of President Putin. Yuri, it's been a while since we've uh, we've spoken, you and I, but no question uh, President Putin knows you or knows at least knows about you and I don't think you're on his Sanduria birthday gift list. Well, no, I'm not, and I do not go to Russia for some years uh, because of this. You would be? Would you be a concern for your personal safety if you went to Russia? Well, I, I think it would be a concern, and I think if something happens, it would be my own mistake. So I just do not okay. go there uh, to to be. Uh, Safe, but uh, speaking about Trump and my publication, actually the next day after I published my article, uh, there was a major publication in Washington Post from the former 
uh, NSA and CIA director who was basically claiming the same. He would not use the word recruited, of course. He would not claim that Trump uh, is an agent of, of uh, Putin. But, uh, but uh, actually... Well, what makes you think that he is? Well, you know, if, if you look at uh, the program uh, which was presented by Trump, the weakest point in this program is his foreign policy. And the major problem with his foreign policy is that he is refusing to criticize Putin's regime and Russian policy uh, of the recent years. And he is basically arguing from a dissolving or weakening matter. In other words, everything what he is saying, what is, by the way, damaging for him and for his campaign, uh, is uh, serving Russia's interest, and there is no other explanation. So you're so you're saying that if when Donald Trump when Donald Trump talks about NATO being maybe worse than useless. Uh, or abandoning, you know, good-for-nothing NATO were the words that he used. So if Donald Trump talks about abandoning or weakening NATO, that, to take your thought to a conclusion, if I may, just tell you what I hopefully understand what you're saying, is that Putin would then be able to move in on Eastern Europe, and so Donald Trump, acting for Vladimir Putin, is opening the door for Putin to do what he wanted to do all along, and that is to annex Eastern Europe. Oh, well, of course, because basically what, what Trump is arguing that the United States should not spend any money for foreign policy because it's unprofitable. Uh, this is a very, you know, traditional uh, policy of isolationism. And we know that in both cases, prior to the First World War and prior to the Second World War, when the United States were not involved in European affairs, it ended with major uh, wars. So, in other words, we know that the only reason Europe has peace or had peace from 1945 until 2014 uh, is because was, NATO was powerful enough to prevent Soviet Union uh, from... Um, you know, further extension. Okay. Now, tell, tell me this, Yuri, just in the in, just in the interest of time. Um, mm-hmm. Why? What? What's in it for Donald Trump to be an agent for, or a representative of, or to speak in the interest of, of Vladimir Putin? What's in it for Trump? Well, the correct answer is that we do not know because you see. We know about agents only after they failed and only after they are exposed and arrested and put to, to, to trial. Prior to this, we could speculate this could be money, or this could be blackmail, or this could be a combination of both. Uh, now, once again, I do not have any proof, but everything was Putin, uh, was uh, Trump is saying mm-hmm. in relation to foreign policy, mm-hmm. third interests of Russia. Uh, every time uh, Trump is asked a question about Putin, he is blindly refusing to criticize him. There is not a single bad word which he, uh, you know, which we heard from Trump, although it's obvious that Russian invasion in, in, into Ukraine should be criticized, a Russian attempt to hack the Internet uh, of the democracy. Okay, I have okay. I have about. You have about sixty seconds. What's the uh, publication, Gordon? Uh, where does that originate? Oh, it's it's a major uh, Ukrainian uh, internet site. It's okay. a major Ukrainian newspaper. Okay, and and so you don't have any proof, and but but you. In both Russian and uh, English. You just it, it's just the signs the signs to you all lead to suggest that Mr. Trump is speaking for um, Mr. Putin and has not once spoken against him. That's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting observation. Well, but it's also his refusal to criticize Russia for, uh, for uh, you know, policies, Russian policy in Syria. And yeah. once again, we did not see, did not hear a single word of criticism uh, of Trump in relation 
to uh, Russia and Putin. And this is extremely suspicious because this is damaging for Putin. He, right. For Trump, he's actually kind of forced into the corner by uh, the Democratic Party, by Clinton, and he's still is refusing to criticize Putin. Right. There is no other explanation. Yuri, I appreciate, I appreciate the time. As always, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Dr. Yuri Fostensky. I can hear the James Bond theme. Uh, The Corporation Russia and the KGB in the Age of President Putin is the name of um, the book that uh, you really wanted to mention. But uh, his book, Blowing Up Russia, which has been banned in Russia by Mr. Putin, uh, resulted in the death of the co-author, Yuri Faustinsky's co-author, Alexander Litvinenko. And the British government held a multi-year exhaustive uh, study or, or researched the death of Litvinenko, and came to the conclusion that, in fact, yes, it was Russian government agents who um, poisoned, radiation poisoned Litvinenko, and he died in a hospital in London. So, and there have been others, including Russian members of parliament, who have been peripherally associated with the book Blowing Up Russia. They also died somewhat mysteriously. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. It was in uh, July that we became collectively aware of Professor Helmut Norpoth from Stony Brook University in New York, a political science professor who has a model which uh, predicts who's going to be winning uh, federal elections, particularly the at the presidential level, President of the United States, and of course Tuesday, is the 2016 vote. Now, Professor Norpoth, in his um, prediction, in, in his model, it's not pr- prediction, it's not like a crystal ball, it's an actual scientific model, and we'll talk to him in a second, uh, has a very strong prediction that Donald Trump is going to win the the election. He also wrote in a column for Newsday in July, my advice, beware of pollsters bearing forecasts. Interesting because, Professor Norpoth, uh, and I've said this a couple of times on the show today, I went earlier today and I had a look at the 2015 British election and the pollsters, 92 polls were conducted over a seven-week period. Not one of them, not one poll predicted a majority conservative government. Of course, that's exactly how it turned out. So, there are people who are saying about Professor Norpoth, what is he smoking? 87% for Donald Trump. What are you smoking? <laughs> I'm smoking numbers. Only numbers. Uh, election numbers. Uh, election returns, primary returns, real numbers where people go to the polls, not what people say in polls. So how does this work? How does your, your uh, the primary model work? Well, in a nutshell, I... I uh, I determine which of the two candidates on the ballot in November did better in the primaries, and uh, Donald Trump did better in the primaries compared to Hillary Clinton on the Democratic side. And that kind of a pattern you can track back to about 1912, 1912, the year that the United States uh, had primary elections to in any uh, large number, and you can see it right there, although I've not, probably not, not so many people noticed it of anybody. But it's a very it's a very striking pattern uh, that what what these primaries produce, and uh, they're just an uncanny indicator of what's happening in November. So, if you're the candidate who wins more of the primaries than your eventual opponent in the presidential election wins, as far as their primary count is concerned, you're going to win the presidency. Odds on. Yes, that's that's essentially right. I should I should. I should add that if for, for this particular uh, election cycle, I relied on, on just two primaries. Now, that may be quite a gamble. I, I, I relied on New Hampshire, the first one, and South Carolina. Uh, so uh, uh, in, in years past, in the last, uh, I think, three elections, I only actually used New Hampshire. I was a little bit uh, broader in my view and included uh, South Carolina as well. So that's why I was able to make the forecast already in March. All right. So so it's not all the primaries. You choose no, either one or, primaries. in this case, two, right? Right, right. But I sort of kept an eye on what was happening in the primaries. And if I had waited until sort of, uh, I don't know, June, uh, when they when the last primary was uh, was conducted, 
it uh, would have produced pretty much the same forecast. So I I, I didn't really uh, lose anything by uh, uh, sticking my neck out in March. So now you have been, for the last five election cycles, tw- uh, 20 years, you've been correct. Yes. And if you go back to 1912, only once has the formula not worked. Right. If I do that, if I sort of pretend that I, I was going to make a forecast for 1912 based on the way the formula works, then... Uh, I would get each of these elections right, except one 1960. So what was it about, and you know you know how we are in media. You can be right a thousand times and wrong once, and we're going to focus on the once, right? Because that's, 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 a, that's a kind of retro thinking that we're capable of. Um, but, but, no, it's an, but it's an interesting question. Why was that the outlier? Why was that different? Well, it's, uh, I've I've pondered uh, I've, I've that a lot, and I've tweaked my model, and I've done 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 everything possible because Kennedy was sort of my idol, and I, I hate to uh, to get him wrong. Uh, Kennedy and Nixon were both very strong in the primaries, uh, so they they let's say they even. And uh, uh, the other, I should say, there's another predictor in the model that doesn't show up in the title, uh, which is. Uh, uh, sort of the swing of the pendulum uh, from one election to, especially after uh, two terms. There's usually a swing after two terms. And uh, in uh, in 1960, uh, Eisenhower had done pretty well in uh, getting reelected. He's a little bit better in re-elect- getting reelected than the first time, and that usually helps the party that is in the White House to uh, to uh, to get a third term. Uh, the same thing happened in. 1988, when you had Ronald Reagan stepping down after two terms, and uh, George Bush, the elder, winning sort of a third Reagan term. That's what I, that, that's how I how I look at it. And Reagan had won a big landslide in '84 after winning a pretty good victory, but not quite as big a landslide in 1980. And when you have that, uh, then you usually you have a better, let's say, chance to to get a third term. Okay. Now let uh, me ask you this. Let me ask you, Professor yeah. Norpoff, how do your students react to this? Um, do you have do you have a lot of, do you have a lot of lefty students? Well, I teach a class on on uh, on campaigns. So the first thing in September, I gave them my forecast. Uh, many of them had heard about. It. In fact, right. the moment I stepped into the class, uh, one of the students looked at me and said, uh, "You're still sticking with your forecast." Uh, so it wasn't wasn't really wasn't really news uh, to to them. Then as, as I as I surveyed the class, I saw one student with a laptop open, and I could see sort of the the the, the cover of the lack of the laptop, and he had a sticker on his laptop. It was a red sticker, and it says Trump, make America great again. I, oh, okay. I didn't see any sticker like that for Hillary Clinton, so uh, I, I don't. He hasn't taken any uh, any guck from any other students. So I I, I think uh, maybe Stony Brook is, is not typical, but uh, students are pretty. Uh, sort of uh, uh, diverse, I would say, in terms okay. of politics. So you, nothing, kind of, nothing has happened for you to change your view of what's no, going to happen. No, right? no, the formula is what it is. I mean, uh, if, the only way I could change is if I, if I find out that I made a mistake. Like I, I, I made an error in calculation. I, uh, I, I did something uh, like a, like a, uh, like an error. But, uh, so, no, so if nothing. So, so, so if I were to, if I were to. So, well, I'm going to say to you, I was going to say, if I take the formula away and ask you how you feel, but I'll ask you to to not think about the formula for a moment yeah. and just react as a voter to mm-hmm. to what you see around you and what you've mm-hmm. heard and what you hear people saying and what media are reporting. How yeah. do you, how would you formula aside? How would you how would you think Tuesday would turn out? Well, I mean, you're asking me. Well, of course, I mean, I'd, I'd be aware of the polls, like the, the polls, uh, as you said. In no, I just want your thoughts. I'm just everything, all the yeah. information combined. Apart yeah. from if we just remove your formula, and you're exposed uh, to all the other information, like most, like the, most of the rest of us, how yeah. how would you expect Tuesday to turn out? Um, well, I mean, I can see a lot of signs that that, that, that Donald Trump's campaign is doing very well. Uh, I, I somehow I, I see more of, of, of that. I mean, not personally, but from what you sort of uh, uh, read about it and, and, and watching the news, uh, it sounds like that there's more energy, more more enthusiasm, more things going on. He's uh, as compared to to, to Hillary. I, okay. I, I don't see that kind of a. Uh, no, uh, I, I think what, what I what I see from Hillary is yeah. is verging on panic. <laughs> 
Well, I think she probably uh, saw, uh, probably believed at one point that this is in the bag because uh, well, it was. The polls were showing, etc. And she's been there before. She's been a front runner, and she saw it slip away. And, and I mean, in the end, she had to fight. I mean, like hell against uh, Bernie Sanders too. So she's been through that, like being ahead and then seeing it slip away, and then especially so like 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 the last week when. Uh, it, it, it really, uh, I mean, looked like a, like like too too close to call for her. I think right. I, mean, I, I, I I can see that. Yeah. Well, uh, we know they did a number on Bernie Sanders. They uh, they're trying to do a number on Trump, but then at times it looks like Trump's trying to do a number on himself. So, eighty-seven um, percent chance is still the prediction from uh, from the primary model, and That's and yours. Model prediction just based on on the on the performance of the model right. in the past. So that confidence is purely the way the model has worked okay. for, uh, for the elections before. Thank you, Professor Norpar. Thanks for joining okay. us. It'll be very interesting, won't it? I mean, I can't wait now. I want to. It's like, it's like Christmas. How many more sleeps until the election? <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me on. I really, uh, really enjoyed it. Thank yeah, you. me too. Thanks for the time, sir. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I read a column earlier in the week by Tyler Durden in uh, ZeroHedge.com. And the headline was, Clinton Foundation is charity fraud of epic proportions, quote-unquote, analyst charges in stunning takedown. Now, the analyst is Charles Ortel, and uh, he is a Wall Street analyst who uncovered the financial discrepancies at General Electric before the company's stock crash in 2008, and the Sunday Times of London describes Mr. Ortel as, quote, one of the finest analysts of financial statements on the planet. Now, um, Charles Ortel deconstructed the Clinton Foundation and declares it to be entirely corrupt. In February 2015, he wrote, quote, Clinton Foundation entities are part of a network that has defrauded donors and created illegal private gains of approximately $100 billion in combined magnitude and possibly more since 23 October 1997, end quote. Charles, thank you for joining us. I, I read the column. I read that, I read that statement, and it's, I, it was one of those oh-my-God moments. Well, thanks for, so much for having me on. You yeah, it's, it's, it's good to talk to you. And, and we've, we've heard a lot, and a lot has been said, or particularly over the last weeks, about the play-for-pay situation that supposedly existed between Hillary Clinton and the State Department um, and the Clinton Foundation. If, if, you wanted to, um, if you wanted to meet with her, you had to make a contribution to the Clinton Foundation, and that's being investigated. So I want to talk to you about all of that. But if you would share with us a little bit about yourself professionally first, give us a bit of an idea of who you are. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, I uh, got out of Harvard Business School in 1980, and had a career as a banker. I ran a large merger and acquisition and investment firm, and I was fortunate to be able to retire in 2002 at the age of 46. Um, since then, I've been doing a lot of work with my family, and more recently in 2007, I began warning my friends of the credit crisis and structural crisis that I see ongoing and unresolved around the world. Uh, and I got into the Clinton Foundation thing because I like examining complex matters and a number of my friends were saying to me that they liked what they heard about the Clinton Foundation, but couldn't actually figure out what they were doing. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, the more I read about it, and I don't know very much about these things, uh, so it's all very, very new to me. But as I was reading more and more in uh, Mr. Durden's article uh, about you and what you've investigated and what you found and you, uh, what you're putting on your website, the more I, I thought this is such a, a cleverly... Um, conceived and concealed um, program that the Clintons have put in place, uh, this this foundation. Uh, Am I close? Well, yeah, I mean, like GE and like some of these other very large matters, which in theory are regulated, when you get involved with a gigantic mess, the general public suspends uh, willing disbelief and and goes down a path of saying, well, you know, huge. It's all over the world. It's by a former president and maybe a future president. It couldn't possibly be as bad as it looks. And uh, in this case, what you have down here is you have a former president milking the Rolodex he created with his wife in public, quote, service, being emulated, frankly, by leaders in your country, in Canada, in Norway, in France, in England, in Australia, 
around the world. Former presidents have a tough time paying their bills when they get out of office, and they certainly can't fly around on gigantic you know, corporate jets and stay at presidential suites on the salaries of whatever they get, their retirement pensions. Now, Mrs. Clinton talked about them being broke at the end of the eight years in power for her husband. Um, and and so, so now they have this enormous amount of money and this, uh, this foundation, which is bringing in an enormous amounts of money. And um, in order to meet that personal, get that personal meeting with Hillary Clinton in the play for pay, you had to make large contributions to the foundation, like in millions of dollars. I understand the King of Morocco paid, I think it was $6 million for a phone call, which may have been with Bill Clinton. So how does this all work? Can you deconstruct it for us and in layman's terminology tell us what's going on? All right. Well, simply put, with a charity in, in our country and, frankly, in your country, you stand in the shoes of government. You're not allowed to engage in any illegal activities. It sounds great on paper, but the regulatory uh, group that might regulate a Canadian charity operating internationally or this U.S. charity operating internationally doesn't have the teeth and the firepower and apparently the will to look inside and figure out just how crooked and how cooked these books are. But somebody who has experience looking at financial statements, who understands the rules and the laws, can see for yourself this has never been audited. It's never had independent trustees. There are all kinds of huge discrepancies between what your government says it sent to this charity and what this charity claims it got, uh, and not just your government, Australia, many other places. is massive. In some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars of discrepancies uh, between donor amounts and Clinton disclosures. And... Uh, you know, it's just, it's a, in some ways, it's a perfect fraud because uh, when you get involved, as they have with these natural disasters, you're, the people of Canada have been very generous, they thought, sending money towards Bill Clinton sure. to help in Haiti. But nobody really knows whatever happened to that money because there isn't an international regulator who can say, listen, you know, to the UN and the other, and to your, your various governments can say, you know, you have to tell us what actually happened. And Bill in Haiti, with the former prime minister of Haiti, has categorically refused to provide any visibility into the billions of dollars that were sent towards that thing. So how do they how do they get to go with this? I mean, they've got the IRS, which is supposedly there to investigate any potential tax frauds. How how do they get away with it? Is it just the power of? Uh, the, the presidency or the former presidency that helps you get away with this sort of thing? Well, I think they figured out. There's a great author named Jeff Gerth, who's actually a friend of mine, who wrote a book about the Clintons. And years ago, he said they had a 20-year plan. The first bill would go in, and then there'd be a, a brief rest, and then Hillary would go in. And then he expanded and said that Chelsea would go in. When you look at our government, and perhaps your government, the regulatory apparatus is thin. Somebody has to decide to refer a case for prosecution. Somebody else has to decide, should it be prosecuted? If you control those people, whether you're president or not, you have enormous power. And we saw in the Lois Lerner case, where Lois Lerner targeted in 2010 with the Department of Justice, almost exclusively conservative groups, when you go through the real facts, uh, and let the Clinton Foundation off the hook just at a time when the Clinton Foundation was imploding. I mean, it was, ba it was in disaster shape in 2007, 8, 9. By 10, it should have been shut down then, but no, they didn't do that. Yeah, and I suppose if you were to be the investigator or the litigator on the public payroll who was going to publicly take them on, you might be committing professional suicide if, you're, if, you, if you stay uh, exposed alone and you're up against the machine. The machine will take you down. Exactly, and this is why I'm so grateful to be on your show and, and have had the, the privilege over the last several months to talk to people around the world. The, the eyes of the world are on this charity, as they should be, because Barack Obama, when he leaves, has already announced and established you know, a replica charity that has loose controls, that has not made its filings properly, uh, and that has to now go and raise half a billion, $700 million to set up the new complex in Chicago. Um, and we don't yet know whether Michelle truly will never run for office again. So you could have a mirror image of the Clinton Foundation uh, doing just what Bill and Hillary have done uh, in the un unwelcome scenario that Hillary escapes prosecution and becomes president. And if people think uh, you're the only person who is investigating them, uh, they should know that, uh, and this again Mr. Durden's uh, piece, the Clinton Foundation was on a watch list for problematic nonprofit organizations since 2015. The Sunlight Foundation has accused the Clintons, or at least the foundation, of operating like a slush fund for the Clintons. So they're they're being uh, they're being observed now. Um, 
does this then mean, by extension, Charles, that legitimate donors, I mean, you, you talked about the Canadians and, and others globally who saw the horror of, the, uh, of, of, of Haiti and wanted to help and did help, and so they delivered money to the Clinton Foundation. Does this mean that the people who, who, uh, who may have delivered money are, are somehow on the hook for taxes if they claimed um, a contribution to the foundation? Absolutely. I mean, I don't know Canadian law as well as your listeners might, but I understand that a, a charity in, Can- in Canada that makes a donation to a U.S. operation better make sure that, A, the Canadian charity is authorized for the purpose in which it wants to send money, and also that the recipient, the Clinton Foundation, is properly authorized. A man named Frank Juster made a bunch, it's reported, of contributions through, from Canada into the U.S. at a time when the Clinton Foundation was not properly organized. So I believe Mr. Juster and his various organizations, the Radcliffe Foundation, may have potential um, tax liabilities in Canada, in the U.S., and around the world. Um, I want to read something that I uh, I underscored, and uh, I, I read it earlier, and it's this is just what, and it's in bold print in uh, Mr. Dryden's column, um, Mr. Durden's column. His stunning summary, that this would be you, quote, An educated guess based on ongoing analysis of the public record begun in February 2015 is that the Clinton Foundation entities are a part of a network that has defrauded donors and created illegal private gains of approximately $100 billion in combined magnitude and possibly more since 23 October 1997. That is staggering. Well, I'm about to make it more staggering because since I, since that was written, a lot more information has come out, and particularly recently with WikiLeaks about a lot more allied affiliates, more frauds, more legal private gain. The correct uh, decimal point or, or, or amount to be thinking about here is in the trillions, plural. How does that? I mean, how does, how does trillions. how does that happen? Well, because, you see, what the Clintons have figured out is that America has such a prominent role in all these multilateral organizations. We exercise influence over the International Finance Corporation, the World Bank, all these different things. You give money to, a, to an American president, like the Clintons, and the team around the Clintons, the Doug Bands, the various names that have been mentioned, can then unlock the spigots of the World Health Organization, the Global Fund here and there, not to mention the stimulus plans inside our country, and through alliances with some of these foreign leaders who go off and emulate the Clintons, the equivalent in Australia and the U.K. and France, etc., so when you start thinking about that and then look at how much money the donors to the Clinton Foundation are making off this but not tying into the Clinton Foundation books as they should, that's how you get very rapidly into the trillions. They're not coming after you, are they? Well, um, you know, I, I hope not. Uh, you know, I did take the precaution months ago when I started this of sharing this work broadly with many uh, investigative journalists. I'm not an investigative journalist. I'm just a private investor who doesn't mind writing and speaking on the radio and TV, but there are a whole, there's a pack, I would say, of very serious people on this around the world, and they're not going away. Am I even in the ballpark uh, by thinking Ponzi scheme? Absolutely. This is, this is Madoff in charity land. If you think about um, Mr. Madoff, Bernie Madoff, yeah. um, he, he used a bucket shop accounting firm that turned out it was cooking the books, over a strip mall, very similar to the one that was using that it originally was in on this thing, BKD. It's not a bucket shop, but it's a small firm with no, limited international capabilities. And uh, you know, he sold a story that was too good to be true. That's exactly what the Clintons have done. Is this you think where the private server came into play? I'm probably asking you to speculate a bit here. Um, do you think the FBI and perhaps other police organizations? have information about what you've been sharing with us. Uh, Tyler Durden writes, the Department of Justice ordered FBI agents to stop investigating the Clinton Foundation and then became furious when some of the agents refused to follow that order. Yeah. Now, I could say on air that I, I, I'm not just making this up to or dissembling. I, I am not in touch with the FBI. I am told, however, by people who are that they follow my work quite actively. Uh, I, I have, of course, uh, consulted with numerous teams of lawyers who are expert in the field. And um, the difference between what you see in the public filings 
and the rules and requirements under state, federal, and foreign laws is so vast that only somebody who is deaf, dumb, and blind and told not to follow the trail could reach the conclusion that there isn't serious trouble at the Clinton Foundation. To put this in perspective, there's a sitting congressperson named Corinne Brown who has a, an alleged slush fund of $800,000 operated for, say, four years or so in one state in Florida. And in the middle of this, this election season, she is running for Congress again. Um, the federal government, the federal attorneys, made it a decision to throw the book at her and alleging in an indictment uh, charges that would put her away for 357 years. She's 69 years old. She's African-American. She's a Democrat in the middle of a campaign. Been in Congress since, I think, 1993. So normally, when you commit charity fraud, when you operate a slush fund with no controls, when you solicit on the basis of false and materially misleading documents, which is admitted by in reports uh, that have come out through this WikiLeaks, and of course, you know, we have to make sure that they're all authentic, but the trail is so long, and the Clinton Foundation people have not dis denied a single WikiLeaks so far. Uh, the, the reports that are out there make plain that this has, in fact, been a vast fraud for a long time. There's a double standard here. You know, why, why do you let, give the Clintons a pass and go after this poor Democrat who's actually not from the same political school of life as I am, happens to be an African-American, happens to be a superdelegate for Hillary? You know, why do, we, why do they have a huge cloud in the middle of an election over her but allow this international embarrassment and disgrace that impugns the integrity of our entire public charity system, and indeed the system of justice in this country and around the world. How can you let yeah. this happen? Charles, I, I'm sorry that we were, we're out of time, but I do appreciate very much you are joining me on air, and I thank my friend Alex Pearson for introducing me to you, and I hope you'll come back. Anytime. CharlesMortel.com is the website. Um, go ahead and read about it, about um, what Charles has investigated and found and written about the Clinton Foundation. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.